and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Since the invasion of Ukraine, repression inside Putin's Russia has intensified with the Kremlin's goal to shut down the possibility of dissent and to insulate the regime's hold on power from any blowback from the war. The crackdown has affected all facets of Russian civil society, including the targeting of opposition activists, human rights defenders, lawyers, journalists, and academics. And of course, the media sector and and information environment has been a primary target. The crackdown predates the invasion. Before the war, the Kremlin was already pursuing measures like expanding its foreign agents lists, but things have worsened. Now, Russians accused of disseminating uh, information, quote unquote, discrediting the armed forces or calling the Ukraine conflict a war or an invasion may be charged with up to 10 years in prison. The authorities have blocked over 180 media outlets, including the flagships of independent journalism, like the Echo of Moscow radio station and TV Rain. These trends have contributed to a major exodus of Russians from the country and an overall sense that it is all but impossible to reach Russians inside Russia. And so to dig into these dynamics, we're really happy to be joined by three excellent guests. We're happy to welcome Jamie Fly, who's the president and chief executive officer of RFERL. We're happy to have Andre Shari, who is the director of RFE of RFERL's Russian service, uh, Radio Svoboda, and Pavel Butorin, who is the director of Current Time TV, which is a Russian language digital and TV network led by RFERL in cooperation with the Voice of America. Um, welcome, all three of you. Um, okay, Andre, maybe we can start with you. Um, you know, you have been there at RFERL through all of this. Um, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you've seen the changes in the information environment in Russia since the war. And maybe just to, if you want to rewind and give a little bit of context, there has been this longstanding trend towards greater repression and more control over the information environment. But just to situate our listeners, how have you seen things change over the last couple of years, but you know, really in the wake of Putin's invasion of Ukraine? Um, Andreas, thank you for having us. So it's you and uh, hello to all listeners of your beautiful podcast. Of course, uh, uh, there's nothing new in uh, Russian, uh, Russian government uh, oppressive politics uh, towards uh, free media. And we noticed it on our own skin, not only uh, half a year ago, because uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, is its stable and substantial presence in Russia on the ground, uh, felt as uh, one of the first uh, media outlets, what does it mean to have political censorship in, in Russia? Um, I can compare quietly being a veteran of the company with over 30 years of experience. I can quietly compare a situation we were in the beginning of 90s in, in Moscow when uh, RFRL uh, put its uh, first big footprint on the, on the ground. We opened a big bureau in Moscow, which was instrumental for over 30 years. And uh, it was shut down by, practically, we were kicked, kicked, kicked off the country this spring due to the, uh, just after the beginning of, uh, of war in, in Ukraine. Uh, but we were the first uh, to be uh, listed as foreign agents in uh, in 2016, 
And since then, the pressure constantly was rising against us, and uh, uh, the Russian government just uh, cleared their uh, space for uh, pro-governmental media, uh, killing one by one, uh, or seizing one by one, uh, independent media outlets. The pressure has substantially risen a couple of years ago when the legislation of foreign agents uh, uh, had been uh, upgraded. Uh, just now I can tell you that in my team there are um, almost 20 journalists who are designated as foreign agents as individuals. Most of them had fled the country already. Uh, and uh, big fines were imposed uh, on the company due to the fact that we decided not to obey to their repressive politics of uh, Mr. Putin and Kremlin, uh, we, who was tried to uh, to impose uh, clear censorship on us, uh, trying to, to label our content, each piece of the content we had with a uh, disclaimer that we are a foreign agent. Uh, so, and situation had begun to deteriorate rapidly uh, on the eve of Russian military invasion on Ukraine and right after uh, the end of February, uh, because uh, a bunch of Russian independent media was, uh, as we listed as foreign agents, uh, some of them obeyed to the rules, uh, others didn't. Uh, some of them uh, already before the war had left the country, others did it after the beginning of war, and uh, due to the fact that uh, political censorship gained ground in Russia now, uh, we can tell that there is no uh, single independent voice from inside Russia. Uh, so independent Russian journalism is crashed uh, down in, in Russia, inside the country. And uh, all over Europe, there are several capitals of uh, new independent Russian journalism like Riga, Tbilisi, Vilnius, uh, Warsaw, Prague, and other cities where uh, different journalists had uh, found their safe harbor trying to escape from political censorship or even uh, due to the fact that their security was uh, threatened by the Russian government. Uh, from, from my team, several dozens of journalists had uh, fled countries this year. We relocated uh, part of the people uh, uh, last year to Prague and some of them this year to Riga, to Tbilisi. Uh, so it's a new political and professional situation for us. Uh, the major blow was uh, blocking so for um, websites. You mentioned that there are, uh, there are a couple of hundreds, but in reality there are a couple of thousands already internet websites which are blocked by the Russian government. So, and um, space presumed to be totally controlled by Kremlin, which is not the case because uh, there are independent voices from outside the country, not only we, but a bunch of other independent Russian language media. Uh, and everybody uses VPN, uses uh, different technical measures to circumvallate the regime of oppression from the part of the Russian state. So I will stop there just to give floor to my colleagues, but nevertheless, the situation uh, has been really dramatic. Yeah, that's really helpful. And Pavel, maybe just to turn to you, and you can feel free to add to anything that Andre said, but maybe also just to give listeners a little a better sense of what current time TV does. Um, can you just you know, give us a little background? 
Yeah, thank you, Andrea. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Uh, yeah, Current Time is a Russian language 24-7 television and digital network. We broadcast in Russian to audiences um, inside Russia, but also uh, outside of Russia as well. It, essentially, anyone who understands uh, Russian and, uh, you know, on traditional means of distribution we are active uh, you know uh, from central europe to central asia really and obviously on, online we're available worldwide um we started current time as a single news program uh several months after russia's annexation of crimea so we we launched the show that was called current time in the fall of two, two, 2014 and then we launched uh, a, a, a full-fledged television channel uh, in late uh, 2016. Um, uh, we've since developed uh, large audiences uh, in uh, Europe, uh, in Central Asia, inside Russia as well. And in each of those markets, um, we uh, uh, diversify the way we deliver content uh, in Europe and Central Europe and in the Baltics who are available as a television channel, you know, on, on cable and satellite in Russia. While we are also available on satellite, but most of our viewers come from YouTube, YouTube is still available in Russia. And uh, uh, and uh, we also have some reach in Central Asia. We, As a matter of fact, we, we produce a, a program in Russian uh, for Central Asian audiences out of Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. So this is in a nutshell, you know, uh, uh, current time. Um, thank you. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um... I'm maybe so one of the questions that I feel like I get a lot or are certainly in the early stages of the war when all of these when the when this crackdown was intensifying, there was really great interest in um, the United States and Europe's ability to reach audiences inside of Russia, given all of the disinformation and all of the, you know, Putin's very tight grip over the narrative of what this what war was and is. Um, you know, we would get questions, Jim and I, from media about, well, how, you know, what is Russians' understanding of the war and how do we reach them? So can you talk, um, maybe, Pavel, just to pick up on your, you, you mentioned having an audience inside Russia. Have you seen those numbers change since the end of the war? Um, has it shrunk? Has it grown? Um, how do you read, you mentioned YouTube. Um, can you just talk a little bit more about how you all think about reaching audiences inside Russia and how that may have changed with the war? So this may come as a surprise to those who are not following our content you know, regularly, but um, uh, I'm proud to report that our audiences, as a matter of fact, have increased uh, significantly, uh, audiences specifically inside Russia. Um, in the few first months after the invasion, uh, uh, we, we saw an uptick in our views uh, from Russia, particularly on YouTube. Um, we've reported uh, more than 3 billion views uh, in, uh, across our social networks, uh, you know, Facebook, you, you know, including YouTube as well, uh, Instagram. Um, as I said, we try to diversify our platforms as much as possible. And um, most of those views continue to come from inside Russia. Uh, uh, YouTube is quite um, transparent about its uh, statistics, so it's easy to track. And um, you know, depending on, uh, on 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 the show, you know, we we see from forty eight to sixty two percent views coming from uh, Russia. And as you know, our website was also blocked, uh, you know, two days, essentially two days after the invasion. 
Um, but uh, that uh, was something that we had been preparing for. Uh, we uh, uh, spent a lot of time and energy educating our audience about circumvention tools. Um, and uh, we had been working on the creation of uh, mirror websites. So while, um, you know, the, the blocking of the website does, uh, did affect the number of our website audience, um, we 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 didn't put all eggs in one basket, and so you know we we were still very active in uh, on YouTube and Instagram and and, and really every um, every uh, social network that was still available in Russia at the time. I know Jim wants to get in with a question, but just a really quick follow up. I mean, my understanding is that the Kremlin too has gone to great lengths to try to convince Russians that alternative sources of information aren't to be trusted. Um, that it really is just the state-run media that you can trust, particularly for information about the war and other things. Um, why is it that you think your uh, viewership has increased after the war? Well, it's our opinion that what matters now is not really the brands, but rather stories. You know, stories are much more important than brands. And I think uh, we, um, especially in the first few weeks of the war, um, we were the premier source of uh, uncensored, fact-based information about the war. Really, the only source at the time. Um, I'm talking about RFRL as a whole. Um, as uh, many uh, independently-minded um, Russian media outlets were busy leaving the country or, you know, reassessing their posture inside the country, we stayed on the air. Uh, for almost three months, we carried, uh, you know, 12 to 13 hours of live programming dedicated specific specifically to war coverage every day. And so, you know, Russian audiences had nowhere else to go but to, to us for this kind of information. Thank you all uh, so much uh, for appearing and for this uh, very rare opportunity for our listeners to really get the inside uh, scoop on, on how we try to reach into Russia and, and counter a lot of the misinformation coming from Russia, spreading both across Europe and into the U.S. So this is great to hear from you all. Um, I guess a, a couple of questions, though. Uh, just one to start off. Uh, how well is the U.S. Congress and the administration uh, working with you all? Because, you know, there was a time in the Congress, at least, where Voice of America, uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, all the various uh, outlets that we had as part of USIA, you know, uh, they were being uh, cut. The monies were being taken out. So they weren't being given a lot of uh, attention uh, by administrations in the past or by uh, congressional budgeteers, and now suddenly you guys are back. And I, and so my question for you is: Are you are you approaching the level of of engagement uh, that we would have seen during the Cold War days? Uh, um, probably not. But are you on a trajectory heading in that direction? And are uh, you getting the the budgetary attention from the administration and from the Congress as well, or are you having to do this out of hide, as we used to say? Um, having to do a lot more content, a lot more outreach, uh, and you're having to pay for it out of budgets that were put together during a time of relative peace. Jamie Fly, um, I know you just joined. I introduced you at the top, but I'm going to throw that question over to you, and we're so glad you can join us. So welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you, Andre and Jim. Uh, so it's an important question, Jim, and actually we're spending, Andre, Pavel, and I are spending a lot of our time uh, this week here in Washington, uh, working on on that very issue, briefing members of Congress and their staff, 
highlighting our successes thus far over the course of the war and also making very clear what our needs are. I think the challenge we face is that for more than a decade, Vladimir Putin has been investing in the information space, has been funding propaganda outlets to advance the the Kremlin's agenda and and messaging, not just to Russian audiences, but obviously uh, to audiences around the globe, including here in the U.S. And uh, the the U.S. tools, of which U.S. international broadcasting is one, have been serially underfunded. We are nowhere near to our Cold War level budgets, uh, even though the challenges in some respects are quite similar. Um, We have gotten just in the last year our first budget increase in the last five or six years. It came, thankfully, just as the war started. But the important thing to note there is that 15 percent increase actually was something we've been working on even before we knew that Vladimir Putin was going to invade Ukraine. And so uh, it didn't the planning for that increase and the case we made to Capitol Hill really had nothing to do with the invasion of Ukraine. It was an investment that we were asking for to try to address some of these longstanding challenges that we have seen growing over time. And as we got that 15 percent increase, uh, which we're now able to apply to some of our urgent needs in Ukraine or new Russian language programming, uh, the Kremlin actually put out a press report saying that they had just tripled their information spending in the first three months of the war alone. Uh, so you you see that they continue to invest in this space and we fall further and further behind. Now, with the limited funding we have had, we've had amazing success. And Andre and Pavel have talked about the fact that despite the fact that we're blocked inside Russia, our audiences are growing. Uh, more and more Russians are seeking out alternative sources of information. So the audience is there. We just need the resources to be able to do hard-hitting, truthful journalism uh, and, and then make sure we can have the technological support to circumvent the blocking and and deal with those challenges that are being imposed on us uh, by the Kremlin. And so I think we still, on that count, have a, a ways to go in terms of uh, additional support that we'd like to see in the future. Jamie, can you talk a little bit more about the audiences inside Russia? Because you do get the sense that there, there's kind of like a certain fatalism, like that it's impossible to reach Russians. Um, can you, I mean, and, and it is, you know, I am surprised and really heartened to hear that the audiences have grown in the wake of the war. Um, and I think that might come to news to many. So new, come as news to many. So can you talk about who you, your understanding of who your audiences are and how they access your content? So yeah, at RFRL, um, we do not uh, subscribe to the notion that the Russian public is a lost cause. Uh, If we believe that, then there would be no point in us expanding our outreach to Russian audiences. And it also would completely conflict with our history as an institution. Uh, We stood by captive nations for decades, uh, were the voice of truth, provided hope uh, and optimism to them through very dark periods. And we saw, uh, although people are often very reluctant and at times afraid to engage with certain content, uh, once things opened up just a little bit, audiences suddenly grew and people became emboldened and were willing to seek out truthful information. And we're seeing signs of that inside Russia um, the other thing that I think we have going for us is, yes, at the early in the early phase of the war, uh, as the Kremlin tried to say that this was a limited operation, it was a special 
military operation, limited in scope, limited in duration. Well, here we are uh, headed towards 10 months in. Um, any Russian just needs to look around and realize that they were being lied to. Um, that is also encouraging people to seek out alternative sources of information. And key developments like mass mobilization uh, also lead to spikes in traffic. When people feel that the war is finally affecting them or their families personally, they will go to current time. We've even had some evidence that Russians inside Russia are actually going to our Ukrainian language websites, which are not blocked in Russia, uh, because they want to figure out what the hell is going on in Ukraine. What is my brother or son going to deal with if they get sent to the front line? And uh, one thing we also have that many other news organizations do not is a significant footprint on the ground in Ukraine, embedded with Ukrainian military. We're able to tell personal stories of Ukrainians who are affected by this war. And we're also able to produce gripping coverage of the actual fighting. These are all things that Russians cannot find elsewhere. And so they are hungry for this content and keep on coming uh, to engage with our content. The final thing I'll just say is we're always looking to improve and we want to make sure that even if people aren't comfortable engaging with hard-hitting war coverage, that we have some programming that they will find compelling. And as the Russian audience needs change, our programming is gonna have to change. And so with some of this uh, new funding that we've received, uh, we're experimenting with a, a number of different types of programming, including some non-news programming, uh, highlighting content that uh, Russians will still be interested in, but it might not all be high politics, uh, but especially those who are maybe nervous about uh, criticizing the regime openly, maybe even by some of the narrative they hear from the regime. They still want to engage in Russian cultural content, music, comedy. Uh, we're trying to make sure that we at least have some offerings that are relevant to those audiences, not just opposition-minded Russians. Yeah. Um, and so maybe just one more question on the audience. And then, Jim, were you signaling to get into? Um, do you have a sense, Jamie, in terms of like demographics of audience, like young versus old, urban versus rural? And I was also wondering about um, the use of VPNs. I know that's one thing that Russians can do to try to circumvent some of these restrictions or, or the blockages. But um, I've also heard kind of anecdotally that the Kremlin is taking steps to try to crack down on Russians' use of VPNs. And I wonder to what extent um, you see evidence of that. Yeah, the demographics and, and Pavel and Andre may have other thoughts. It is a bit harder now uh, because so much of our traffic is coming to us through VPNs. So the VPNs naturally, I mean, that's what they're for. They mask ultimately uh, where people are coming from. And so we've lost a little bit of that granular sense. Uh, however, we do know historically across our different brands and, and Andre represents our Russian service, Pavel represents current time, which are, are two of our brands. And we have more that operate inside Russia they all have different audiences and they're not just uh, urban, young urban elite. Uh, Andre's service, the Russian service has always done great local reporting. We have regional websites about what's happening in people's communities. And so we're still able to maintain those websites despite the fact that we've had to move a lot of our staff uh, out of Russia. And so we try to appeal to a cross section of Russian society. I think my biggest concern though on the demographics front is the natural limiting factor that now exists if you have to use a VPN to access the content. Now, we can come to us on YouTube, but 
there is going to be a certain demographic that's going to be more comfortable using a VPN, even though most VPNs, the ones that we can make freely available, are not that difficult. Uh, it's probably going to be younger people who feel more tech savvy, um, maybe more urban. Uh, but, uh, you know, we don't have exact numbers about how the need for VPNs has limited our, our audience, but it is a challenge. On whether the VPNs are still working, we heard those concerns early on. And again, Andre and Pavel might have new information. I think we're fairly confident that the VPNs that we and our colleagues at the Open Technology Fund make available are still functioning, have not been compromised by Roscon Nadzor. Uh, and so uh, we have not heard significant issues recently of uh, VPNs uh, not being helpful for people who want to seek out independent information. But Pavel may have additional thoughts. Yeah, I just wanted to add that, you know, while I don't remember the exact data on uh, on the growth of VPN usage inside Russia, I think that information is out there somewhere. But anecdotally, we know that even like in our, you know, extended family circles back in Russia, you know, almost everybody uses VPN. You know, it's become part of your digital life, if you will. And um, also on the uh, demographic point, you know, the um, it really depends across, uh, you know, that demographic uh, uh, data varies across uh, platforms on YouTube. We know that uh, current times audience tends to be a little bit more mature, uh, but we also we diversify our platforms as much as we can, as I said before. And so on Instagram and, you know, we, we also experiment uh, with TikTok. We know that um, uh, uh, that demo is uh, a lot younger. If I may, to add a couple of things, we are always <clears throat> being seen in Russia as a kind of critical media. We always used to have uh, spikes in our audience and in our popularity when something substantial happened. And uh, uh, this crisis with Ukraine, and especially the beginning of the war, gave us uh, the same feeling that we are especially important. And uh, having in mind the fact that, as I mentioned before, there and uh, independent voices in Russia had been had been crushed out. So uh, the market had changed, and we being uh, deployed outside the country from the beginning, uh, in a, in a way gained this momentum and took grabbed some audience which usually was not only ours. So and now I'm talking not only about independently minded uh, minded audience, but also about the people who <clears throat> understand that. Uh, Kremlin is lying to them, but they just are seeking for some new, uh, new voices who could explain to them what uh, what has happened. Uh, and uh, I do share uh, what um, Jamie and uh, Pavel said, but there is a, uh, about VPN. But there is another important issue. It's not only VPN we are walking through, because not all major social networks are blocked in Russia. So our uh, consumption on YouTube has been dramatically, dramatically, dramatically rising. Uh, Telegram is another case uh, where we are much, um, we understand much better than we used to be. And uh, we do use all possible platforms. For example, uh, I can report that we produce a lot of podcasts, which are uh, useful not only for traditional platforms, but through uh, different uh, thousands of platforms across across digital network. So we try to be as diverse as possible, just not to uh, not to lose our audiences. So and hope that it will will succeed. And if I may also add, you know, the, um, 
Um, no more questions. We will talk and no, talk and talk. Just keep talking. Yeah. <laughs> I, love it. I wanted no, to please. make a point of, of um, you know, in order for the audience to to want to make that extra step, our content has to be absolutely stellar. You know, uh, gripping, engaging, and so this is what we're doing here. You know, it's it's not just the hard you know, hard news that we're offering. Obviously, you know, as we cover the uh, conflict in Ukraine. Um, but we try to diversify the um, the um, you know the the kinds of content that we're providing to our audiences. You know, some of our <clears throat> best watched shows have to do with you know our people traveling to uh, re- to the remote areas of Russia in the Far East, uh, in the Ural region, and you know talking to people that that often feel neglected by the Kremlin by uh, by the state media. And so I, I hear, uh, you know, stories and anecdotes from our local producers about how people, you know, with tears in their eyes, they just say that, you know, no one cares about us. You know, this is the first time anybody has spoken to us. You know, anybody has come to this village from any town, any city at all. So so this is the kind of content that we we sort of built uh, the reputation of uh, current time on. And so th- our challenge now and, and our goal is to build on that reputation and know that kind of content as well. I know Jim really wants to get in, but I just, because I have a question on that very point, which is about, you know, how how much harder has it become for you to do that kind of reporting as more and more journalists have been forced out of Russia um, and and as their, the risks to them maybe doing some of their work have gone up? Is it getting harder to report on those local issues because so many journalists have had to leave given the kind of restrictions and costs of of being inside Russia and doing that work? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So as I mentioned, several dozens of journalists had fled from from our team. We still maintain a presence on the ground. Uh, There are brave people who collaborate with us uh, using uh, pseudonyms uh, anonymously, and we uh, try to protect their security as much as it's possible. We do use user-generated content very actively to to um, be able to verify data. But still, we have we have a lot of examples of fairly brave behavior. For example, I can I can tell you that we still are doing vox pops on Moscow streets. So, and a couple of months ago, when the mobilization campaign started, our guy who was our correspondent there, he told that he will flee tomorrow. He will flee the country. And his girlfriend uh, volunteered to help us. So, and instead of young male journalists, we have young female journalists who can't be uh, conscripted right now. So, but uh, they are under scrutiny, and unfortunately, we can't uh, protect them to their hundred uh, percent. So, it's risky. But nevertheless, we are doing our job. And I can tell you that the will of um, reporters on the ground is absolutely immense. They uh, try to. A lot of people, even those who were listed as foreign agents, they said that I will not flee the country till I will feel some uh, real <clears throat> threat for my security. And a lot of people just uh, stand uh, that state till the end, till the, the last possibility. And some of them still remain there. But uh, it's a good question because there is a challenge and it will be very challenging. And unfortunately, I'm not an optimist. We'll have more and more uh, problems with that. And I will also add that we we were very transparent uh, to our contributors inside Russia about the risks that uh, continued uh, collaboration with us entailed. Um, uh, we, you know, some some freelancers stopped working with us, and I respect that decision as well. 
but also as Andre said, you know, many more who wanted to stay with us. And, um, you know, we, um, um, we too, you know, as Andre said, we are also able to collect uh, Vox Pop Ministry videos, uh, not just in Moscow, but in other uh, Russian cities as well. Um, and uh, uh, unfortunately, as Russia continues to pass uh, and adopt all these all those draconian laws uh, about the so-called, uh, you know, misinformation uh, about uh, Russian troops in Ukraine, um, you know, it, it becomes more dangerous for journalists uh, to work uh, with us, but also even for people that are interviewed uh, by current time and, and the Russian service uh, inside Russia. Jim, you've been patient. I should know I'm taking advantage of the fact that you're driving and it might be harder for you to come off mute, but over to you. Well, my, I'm nervous that I'm going to approach the Allegheny Mountains Tunnel, so you're going to lose me to this tunnel. But, uh, but I have one question with three parts. The first part of the question is, uh, you know, when people think about the Voice of America, Radio for Europe, a lot of people think of it in the Cold War context, and they will ask, so well, aren't you being jammed? Isn't, aren't the Russians uh, jamming you guys? You're having to frequency hop or do something to get in? I mean, you talked about YouTube and all that, but I think for, the, for some of the listeners, they're going to wonder about jamming and, and how are you even breaking into Russia at all? That's the first part of the question. Second part is, what are you doing now with Radio Free Europe, VOA, all of that? What are you doing now that that someone from the Cold War VOA would not recognize? I mean, obviously, you're doing YouTube, but you've got TV channels and that kind of thing. But are there other things that um, some of the Cold Warriors would say, wow, well, that's something new? Um, and then the third part is, as you look at the future, you know, back in the Cold War days, of course, VOA and all of that had a lot of cultural impact, uh, rock and roll, and we've all heard the stories, jazz. Are you going to be expanding uh, uh, like that now? Because we're going to be in this struggle for, with Russia for years to come. And I'm wondering, is the trajectory of, of VOA, you mentioned that it, it's not just news and the facts, but you've got to be compelling and, and you've got a lot of human interest stories from Ukraine on the battlefield. But are you also going to kind of get into, I mean, it's not the Cold War and it's not the Soviet Union and the people in Russia listen to rock and roll, so it's not going to be that. But is there going to be a new VOA for the future that actually uh, tries to broaden and get into other features of Russian society to try to build a narrative and a picture to them that is not what they're being fed by Russia? Maybe I'll, I'll tackle that first, Jim. Uh, on the On the jamming, so we actually only do a limited number of hours each day of radio broadcast anymore uh, into Russia. Uh, we don't we do not have shortwave uh, into Russia. And so the broadcasts we do are from outside of Russia and they only have limited geographic reach. Um, almost all of our engagement uh, with audiences inside Russia is online, uh, which is why VPNs the circumvention technology is so important. I would say, though, that the modern equivalent of jamming is essentially the website blocking that we see. And we are involved in this cat and mouse game with things like proxy websites where we change the URLs, push them out on open social media platforms. We're trying to stay one step ahead of the, the sensors and the blocking, just like we were switching frequencies uh, when we primarily used radio as a transmission means during the Cold War. So there are uh, parallels. 
And we have looked into maybe expanding radio since the war started. The reality, though, unless the Russian Internet is completely disconnected from the global Internet, uh, and we see this in country after country, by the way, because we're, RFRL is blocked in many countries, people, especially those under 50, aren't going to go dust off a radio. They're not going to go out to a store and buy a radio and figure out how to use it. People want to continue to get news and information through the tools they're comfortable with, primarily their mobile devices. And that we see is the case uh, inside Russia. And so that's why we're focused uh, on the digital domain. On the cultural programming, we've always done a lot of uh, cultural programming uh, for Russian audiences. We do cultural programming for many of our, our 27 uh, language, for my, our 27 language services uh, across RFERL. We are in the process of expanding some of that content now in the wake of the war. And that will be a new non-news Russian brand that we will uh, roll out as part of an on-demand video platform where we can give voice to performers uh, who, many of whom have now been designated foreign agents, have had to leave Russia, but are still very popular with Russian audiences. And the major difference there, I'd say, is during the Cold War, a lot of what we and our colleagues at Voice of America was doing uh, were doing was um, sharing U.S. music, uh, Western music, Western cultural content, as well as some local content, uh, cultural content. At least in Radio Free Europe now, uh, it's not really our role to promote uh, Americana to the world. That's really Voice of America's role. Talk about American policy, maybe what's going on culturally in America, and plus because of market saturation. Hollywood movies are already available inside Russia. Western music is widely available. And so what we're trying to make available now is some of that Russian content, music, comedy, uh, documentaries, films uh, that has been banned and, and uh, where the Kremlin is literally trying to prevent certain cultural content from being played or shown anymore. We believe we can play a role uh, in, in that space uh, in creating a space that uh, essentially for banned content that the Kremlin would not like Russians to see. Russians can come to our new non-news brand uh, to engage with that content. And our colleagues at Voice of America will do their programming uh, from the U.S. talking about America, highlighting American perspectives as well as, as U.S. policy. And, and that's kind of the modern division of labor when it comes to us and to VOA. That's great, Jamie. Just to pick up, I mean, uh, maybe a couple of follow-ons. Number one, like the cat and mouse dynamic is obviously like crucially important for you all. As you look ahead in terms of what you expect the repressive landscape to look like in Russia, looking forward, what do you see uh, in the next year to two years or even longer? I mean, I think I think it's fair to say that most dictators, once they go down that path, are not going to really reverse the repressions because doing so could signal weakness or opportunity for people pushing for more freedom. So I assume you see like the, a persistent um, repressive environment, but could it get worse? Like, you know, one of the things people de debate a lot is whether or not Putin would crack down on YouTube or some of these other things that are popular with Russians. So can you talk about what you see kind of coming down the pike? My worry is uh, a Belarus model being applied across Russia. And in Belarus, where we've also had challenges, we have a Belarusian service. Uh, our bureau was uh, shut down by the Lukashenko regime. We still have two of our journalists in prison in Belarus. As we got kicked out, they were detained. 
Uh, and in Belarus, because we are an extremist organization or deemed an extremist organization by the Lukashenko regime, it is not just illegal to produce independent information, it is illegal to consume independent information. So our audience now uh, is actually at risk. And there are multiple cases of our Belarusian audience visiting our website and getting a prison sentence for doing so after our website was discovered on their cell phone, liking our content on social media, getting a short prison sentence for liking certain content or sharing certain content on social media. We've even had one case recently where someone sent us a tip uh, and some information, which we didn't even use because we weren't sure about the provenance of that information. That person got arrested and got a prison sentence for communicating with an extremist organization. So uh, it is essentially a police state with full information control by the regime. Russia is obviously a much larger country, but that is an appealing model if you're Vladimir Putin and if you continue to see fractures within society uh, where people become more emboldened, start to question authority, uh, question the course of this war, um, there could be more significant limitations, not just on the work of journalists and news organizations, but actually on the ability of people to consume information. And that has a chilling effect because some of the audience is willing to take risks, but many people just want to tune out then and stay far away from that sort of content because they realize uh, it could have significant repercussions for them and their families. Yeah, uh, yeah, so so challenging. Um, we've been focused primarily on the kind of the Russian kind of market, but you obviously have, um, you've mentioned 27 language, 20 different, 27 language services and you are uh, operating in the region more broadly. To what extent do you see an opportunity in the west of the in the rest of the region after the war in places like the Caucasus or Central Asia, which may now be reevaluating their relationship with Russia? Does that create an opening or an opportunity for you all? It's a huge opportunity, and I think it's already been playing out over the last almost ten months. Um, my assessment is that partly because this war was really conjured up by essentially Vladimir Putin and maybe a very tiny, tiny circle around him. The entire Russian information operation apparatus had to scramble at the start of the war. Uh, they had to refocus some of their energy on the challenge at home because they realized that this war would be controversial. Uh, and I think that did open up, at least initially. I think some of this now has has rebalanced, but it opened up an opportunity on the Russian periphery in some of those other markets in places like Georgia, Moldova, uh, where and in Central Asia, where traditional Russian efforts at disinformation, sowing information, chaos, were put on the back foot. So we, even as we've really doubled down on our outreach to Russian and Ukrainian audiences, we've tried to also expand our outreach in all those other markets where we're well positioned because we have local language services. We often have bureaus in those countries and journalists working there on the ground. Uh, and especially if you look at places like Central Asia, a lot of those governments now have also started to edge slowly away from the Kremlin and try to put some distance between themselves and Putin's uh, policies. And I think we're very well suited in places like Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, uh, to not just reach local audiences, which we've always done very effectively, but uh, serve the influx of migrants from Russia who have fled Russia through those countries and now are living in, living in those countries 
and uh, are interested in seeking out independent information. And so we have looked at how can we target our content more to some of those audiences across the region. And in many of those countries, we already were doing dual language content, both in the local language as well as in Russian. Uh, and so we will be expanding that over time. Yeah, it's such an important point. I mean, there's been such a, a significant um, exodus of Russians from Russia. I don't know what the current numbers are, 300,000, something along those lines. Um, so how are you, how do you think about reaching those um, those audiences. And I mean, I, I asked that because, you know, you know, we're doing a lot of work on, um, you know, figuring out opportunities for supporting Russian civil society, particularly those who have left Russia. And so just to kind of compare notes, you know, how do you, I, mean, I presume you see this as a, as a significant opportunity, but can you talk about the importance of reaching those audiences um, and, and what you, what you guys are doing to, to reach out to those groups? I think Pavel uh, can talk a little bit about how current time is going on. So I'll, I'll give you the example of Germany, for example. Germany, even before the war, before this uh, exodus, you know, already had a sizable Russian-speaking population, an estimated three million people that you know mostly watched Russian television. Um, now that Russian television is essentially out of uh, the European Union, this is indeed an opportunity for us to fill that niche. We're working with uh, local distributors to put current time on, uh, you know, cable networks um, uh, and uh, satellite. And current time is already available uh, in in Germany and in in in, uh, in in a large part of that market as well. We're now finalizing a deal with a distributor in Cyprus. Uh, Cy Cyprus is also home to uh, many Russian exiles and emigres. Um, so uh, we're working on that front, but we're also developing content that targets specifically those Russians who um, left Russia um, recently uh, in the wake of the invasion and uh, you know after the uh, mobilization order. Now, bear in mind that not not all of those Russians are necessarily anti-war. You know, they they oppose the uh, mobilization uh, rather than uh, than sort of the government policy, uh, generally speaking, against Ukraine. Uh, so this is indeed an opportunity for us to reach those audiences as well uh, with specific content. Um, uh, we uh, want to talk to them about their democratic experience uh, in Europe. Uh, listen, you know, for us, uh, uh, we are a values-based uh, news organization. Uh, for us, it's evident that democracy is better than than uh, autocratic regimes. And uh, as those new um, uh, Russian exiles appear in the in the European Union, in the Czech Republic, for example, in the Baltics, we want to educate them as well. You know about uh, you know. Uh, about uh, you know, the democratic experience in the West, um, so uh, this is an opportunity for us, and we're um, and we're using that opportunity now. I know we're running up against time, so maybe one last question, and I'd love to hear all of your thoughts. Um, and maybe Jamie, we can start with you. But I mean, th this is something that's really being debated in the transatlantic community, and there's a lot of people who would argue for understandable reasons that Russians bear collective responsibility for the war in Ukraine. You know, people point out that even when Russians leave, they're not, as you just mentioned, Pavel, you know, they're not necessarily anti-war. They might be anti-mobilization. People highlighting the fact that even when they're away or outside of Russia's borders, they're still not protesting 
um, this barbaric war, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess, you know, Jamie and, and to hear from all of you, like what is the case that you make to when you're here on Capitol Hill or maybe talking to European governments about why it's nonetheless important to continue to support Russian journalists who have left to support Russian civil society? Well, this is this is a fundamental question for us because uh, for our journalists to do their work effectively, they need safe locations to do that work from. Uh, and so we've had, as has been described, we've had to move a lot of our journalists out of Russia over the last year and a half. And we're headquartered in the Czech Republic. Uh, we're now setting up offices in Latvia and Lithuania. So uh, those are our three countries which have some of the strongest views about this issue uh, inside the EU. But we've had very frank conversations. So we have a close partnership with the Czech foreign minister. Uh, I hosted all three Baltic foreign ministers at Radio for Europe uh, a couple months ago, and we discussed the visa issue at length. Uh, we, be I believe strongly that there should be uh, countries can determine what their approach is to Russian tourists, uh, to people outside the humanitarian uh, sector. But I believe there should be a strong humanitarian exception for civil society and journalists. Uh, because otherwise, we're going to have no way to reach those who have stayed behind and ultimately to change minds, uh, which is the, the primary way that this war is likely to end is changing Russian minds. Uh, and that cannot be done if Russian journalists don't have a channel to get outside of the country. And setting aside some of the drama that we see around issues like TV rain, I think for the most part, this issue will get resolved. And the governments, those in Central Europe, the Baltic states, have created humanitarian exceptions. It takes a little bit longer. People's backgrounds need to be investigated. Uh, but we've had a lot of success working with governments to ensure our journalists have safe places to live and, and to work. And so I think that's what more and more governments should should be focused on right now. So I also want us to make a point that we, at current time, we're also... Uh, developing new partnerships with the uh, uh, independent Russian journalists that ha had to leave the country. And um, for example, we have a, an ongoing partnership with The Insider. Uh, the Insider is a leading uh, Russian uh, investigative project. Um, so, uh, I mean, we're doing our part in trying to support those uh, newly exiled Russian journalists while understanding that, um, you know, we don't have to be on the same page on everything. You know, you will agree that a, a healthy media landscape should include diverse, uh, you know, media organizations and views. You know, we're all, uh, you know, about uh, you know intellectual diversity here as well. Um, uh, but, um, you know, uh, and we're, we want current time to be a platform for, you know, uh, at least to a degree, you know, to, to those uh, newly exiled journalists that, that are now finding their new home in Europe. Jim has a teeny follow-on question, and then you can jump in with that last thought. But Jim, just to slip this in, because I know everyone needs to run on, on their end too. Uh, yeah, thanks. Just a real quick follow-up question. Uh, you mentioned earlier, Jamie, that uh, there's other other countries have been blocking uh, Radio Free Europe and, and others, and I can imagine who would be on that rogues list. But let me ask you, are there some other countries that kind of block a U.S. broadcast that we might be surprised are blocking? And I think about Hungary, maybe, or Turkey, uh, European countries that uh, that actually is hard for us to broadcast um, uh, because they, uh, they they're not they're not real 
happy about us, or maybe we don't broadcast anywhere in Europe except to Russia. I don't know, but but is there a, a European problem with some countries there and uh, with U.S. broadcasts? So most of the blocking that we face happens in places like Central Asia, uh, in in Azerbaijan, in Iran. Um, RFERL has returned in recent years, over the last three years, to three EU member states, to Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria, because of democratic backsliding. But we returned as a digital-only service, so we do not do radio broadcasts. And uh, obviously, within the EU, we don't see those countries blocking our websites. I will say that um, although Romania and Romanian and Bulgarian governments have generally been positive about our return, and actually when I meet with them engage, uh, and engage them, they are asking us to do more, uh, the, the government of Viktor Orban, let's just say, is, is uh, a little bit less happy uh, about our return to Hungary. And while the Hungarian state has not taken any actions to prevent us from doing our work, I, we watched very closely the broader media freedom environment there because there are a lot of concerning trends and we want to make sure that our journalists will be able to operate safely in Hungary as in all of our other markets uh, in the coming years. Wonderful. Andre, I don't know if you have anything that you want to add at the very end. Yep. Um, I have uh, one philosophical point, I should say, just to to to. Uh, to terminate our discussion, look what uh, what Putin, what Mr. Putin does now. It's not only Russia against Ukraine, and it's not only uh, West against uh, against Russia or democracy even against authoritarianism. What is personally for me, it's very important. He wants to say that journalism is honest journalism is a crime. My assumption is that it's not. That's what we are fighting for. And it's very, very personal for thousands of Russian journalists who had fled the country, who are under personal scrutiny, who are risking their lives or their security, and they continue to doing their job. These mistakes, these faults, uh, these difficulties and these challenges, but journalism, it's not a crime. It's a decent profession and will be staying it. That's for me. Yeah. No, this has been so wonderful. I know you all have a very busy schedule when you're in Washington, but um, you know this is an issue that we're thinking a lot about. And maybe I'll put in a quick plug for um, our program that just released a memo on uh, recommendations for supporting Russian civil society. And I think the way that we frame it is very much along the lines of what you just said, Jamie, in terms of changing minds that this is an investment in a less confrontational relationship with the future Russia. And so to enable those people who have left Russia in particular to continue to do their job, to continue doing the reporting that you guys are all doing um, and, and, and others is, is critically important. So we're very thankful for the work that you all do. Um, we know it's a really difficult time. And um, yeah, so thank you for everything you do. And thank, thank you for joining the podcast. Same thing on, on my end. I appreciate it. And, you know, I, I go on your, your, uh, I guess it's not Radio Free Europe, but there's a broadcast that you all do straight into uh, Ukraine and also Alhura into the Middle East. And I do a lot of Ukraine and Russia uh, engagement on those outlets. And I've always enjoyed that and very professional group. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye bye. For having us. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. 
You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.